to Nonprofit Lowdown. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. In this podcast, I recommend a book, tool, tip, podcast, or resource that has helped me to build a multi-million dollar nonprofit organization. I've done the research, so you don't have to. Let's get started. Hey, podcast listeners. It's Rhea with you once again with Nonprofit Lowdown. I am here with my friend and recurring guest, Emily Hicks-Rotella, founder of Make Tech Work For You. And by the way, if there are any questions out here for people about technology or anything else, feel free to send us an email and we're going to have Emily as a recurring guest and address all of your tech questions. So Wong at gmail.com. But in the meantime, hello, Emily, again. Hey, again. It's so great to be back here with you. Oh, it's such a pleasure. So, Emily, today I want to talk a little bit about small nonprofits because I think a lot of my listeners are, you know, small nonprofits. I probably define that under like a $2 million budget. And you've worked in bigger places like Teach for America that had departments. I'm thinking about nonprofits that have maybe one person overseeing data in addition to everything else. And so what would you recommend that places start as they even just start to think about data? You talk about the uh, that one person maybe on the team, and, and usually in the small nonprofit, that can fall to the person who just happens to know a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Not that they saw themselves in that tech role, but they take it on just like we all take on more than uh, was our original intent in of a course. nonprofit. So, you know, just recognizing, I think that this is potentially a learning space for this person as well mm-hmm. and supporting them in that. So, encouraging them to look for professional development in the areas that would be beneficial tech skill wise and also to the organization and just recognizing and like celebrating when they've taken on something that might have been beyond their original skill set and showing the impact that it's had in their work. Let's just assume that this is an organization that you know isn't looking at building our, a CRM system or Salesforce. Like, I mean, I know you're a big proponent of Excel. Yeah. Talk to us a little bit about what are some of the basic Excel sheets and basic data points that folks who are just starting out should be collecting? I think I I could always fall back on saying contact information, right? You need people's first names, last names, and emails. You need to be able to get in touch with people. But before you even start to think about what data points are right for you (laughs) that work for your organization, you're going to have to pull up your mission and, you know, take a long, hard look at it and potentially do an an exercise. Maybe you've done it already in your org. That's sort of like a logic model that shows where you're at and where you want to go and the Mm. steps that you guys are taking along the way through programmatic work services, and then figure out the data that has to be gathered to support that work. Because there are a million data points that you could collect, but it takes time and sometimes it takes money to collect those data points. And it can take also trust between you and other partners, people you're serving, people you need to work with, donors. So you really want to hone in on the ones that are most critical as pertains to your mission and your programs. Yeah, I think you make a really good point because I think sometimes people get so overwhelmed that they end up doing nothing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that happens to me, too. (laughs) Sometimes there's just so many things, so many possibilities, so much potential of what you could do with data and tech. I feel it, too. Yeah. But you would say, especially when you're starting out, that simplicity is better than complexity. 
Yeah, I think so. It's certainly, I think, less frightening. And complexity is a, it's kind of a a, a term that's going to have different meaning in different contexts. Mm-hmm. So complex at a small organization could be like a couple of tangled knots of data and systems in complexity in a large organization that's servicing multiple different missions and purposes might be even more complex in a way. So it's, I think it's not something that I would want people to feel daunted by. Mm -hmm. Complexity is just kind of, like I said, a knot to untangle. It's not an impossible task that Mm -hmm. you ride into the sun to do. Yeah. So let's, let's go back to our, our idea, our fictional small nonprofit Mm -hmm. and say you are the only one who is managing the data in addition to perhaps you're the program person or you're in the development office. How would you suggest that people, because I think that the other interesting thing about tech is like you can build it, but people won't necessarily come. There's a very human component to tech and essentially getting people to do stuff that they don't really want to do. <laughs> so like, how, how does one do that? Oh, right. How to influence others. Yeah. Um, it's a really good question uh, specifically to that like small nonprofit one, one person show mm-hmm. also sometimes known as the accidental techie because yes. they just fell into it for their team. So they, a person in that role might not have considered necessarily that they would have to, or want to influence mm-hmm. others to do something because mm-hmm. they're on their path learning it as well sometimes. So I would say probably look at, what is meaningful to you? Like Mm. what gets you to keep going in your tech journey? What excites you? What challenges you? Because a lot of that is going to be where the value or the benefit is at the end of the day. If you can show value and benefit to people, Mm -hmm. other people that will influence them. So a lot of times that will come out as time savings. Mm -hmm. If you can show someone time savings through even something small, a formula, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, you could do it, show time savings by building a big, constituent relationship management system, even as small as a formula that saves a, a manual task that was being done every week can mm-hmm. have a huge impact, especially in a small operation. This might be a little bit outside of the conversation, but can you talk about some automations that you have found to be useful that maybe Ooh. folks can listen to, can try out? Like, what are your favorite like yeah. geeky tech things yeah, that you've right. accomplished uh, or that other people are using? There's little things like a single formula. Like I, this is going to be pretty tech geeky. So if it goes a little too deep, let me know. But in Salesforce, there is a record ID that's 15 digits long Uh and that's not case sensitive. So if you try to do other formulas to look it up, then you can get mixed up because it's looking at capital A's and lowercase a's. And there's a formula that can basically solve that in Excel And I just keep that one on lock everywhere I go because I always am finding that I have to make that transition from 15-digit ID to a more case-sensitive 18-digit ID. If you find that example for yourself, like that's not going to be everyone's example, but the thing that just gets you, right, that every time you have to do that task, every time I had to change that ID before, it just grated at me. (laughs) I couldn't believe I was spending time again on the same task. That's where you say something else has to be possible. Even if you don't know what that automation is, that's a time to ask, seek it out. And that time that you put into seeking out the answer to that would be well 
well spent. I think that that's a good point. It's like if you find yourself doing a particular task over and over again, chances mm-hmm. are there's probably an app for that. Like I, <laughs> yes. I recently, <laughs> or you could build the app for that. You could build easily. the app. Right. I mean, I recently started using Zapier and I was like, my God, this is magical. <laughs> it is. Zapier is magical. And for anyone who doesn't know, Zapier just runs some common code behind the scenes to connect two platforms. Uh, You want to send an email from Gmail and you want Salesforce, a different system to pick up on that can kind of use a third party Zapier to help that process along. Also, this is maybe a little geeky. One of my favorite apps is on Salesforce, Cirrus Insight, because Mm. I would always, as an ED, send out emails. And of course, I would never remember to like log it into Salesforce Mm -hmm. because, you know, why would I? But Cirrus Insight actually automatically logs all of the emails and also pulls data from my calendar so it'll track like when I had meetings or phone calls so I don't have to manually remember to do that. Yes. Uh, Accidental techie in the small nonprofit, if that person's interest is peaked right now and thinking, oh, I can automate it all. I'm going to save so much time. Like, yes, I think that is the future vision. But to avoid that overwhelm Mm -hmm. that we also talked about, look at the list of things you could do. Mm -hmm. Find the one that you think is either simplest or easiest, Mm -hmm. or something you can manage, Mm -hmm. get that one accomplished. It's great to see the big picture. You want all your things to work together, but you can't always tell the future where things are going, what's going to change. So focus on the thing you can get done now. Let's type nitty gritty because I'm really into actionable things. So say I'm the executive director of a small nonprofit and I may have someone on my team who's kind of holding all the data together. Mm -hmm. What could I do as a leader to both encourage them and also to create a foundation for a data-driven culture as we get bigger? Well, first off, if the founder or ED is interested in getting to that data-driven vision, that's already a huge step and making sure that they're working, that that the data person on their team knows that they have their support in that way, Mm -hmm. I think is already a huge leap forward. I think a lot of it is going to be space from the day-to-day execution of tasks, space for some thinking, some research and exploration, some strategy, because the data person, when they hold all the data, a lot of the time is getting all the requests. Yep. They're getting all, anything that goes wrong, they're fixing, you know, in the data system. And they have a lot and they're probably really strong performers, strong executors of tasks, Mm -hmm. and they get a lot done. But if they don't have a space to step back from that and think, big picture, you know, how is our data strategy going to work? What technologies are we going to need now and in the future to support that? You're not going to get, you're not, you're going to, you might be able to move in the right direction, but it'll be a lot slower than Mm -hmm. if that person also had space to step back from the daily tasks. So we know that data is only as good as the data that's fed into it. And Mm -hmm. I, and one of the challenges I always had was working with my team, especially the program people who Honestly, they could do a lot of other things that were more exciting than data entry, right? And and especially when working in, say, with kids, sometimes the immediacy of a kid showing up at the door that you need to deal with is a lot more pressing than doing data entry. So can you talk to me a little bit about some best practices that you've seen around encouraging people to Mm -hmm. really input the data? And I imagine there's some carrot and stick (laughs) happening there. I'm sure, yes. It's interesting. I'm working uh, with another partner, and I think we're actually going to be doing a webinar that addresses a lot of this kind of mindset. Mm -hmm. Specifically, we're going to focus in on some data entry mindsets. Mm -hmm. One thing is to know the purpose. To know the purpose is huge. And I think of this 
in light of a, a story that I have to tell about a CEO of a large nonprofits who did a lot of fundraising. And I had her on a panel and she noted that she was just as comfortable and happy and excited to ask someone for a million dollars as for one dollar or two dollars. And she had no qualms about it because she was really involved in the organization and she knew where every dollar was going. Like She saw the faces of the kids that it was impacting and she had that in mind Mm -hmm. when she was asking for huge amounts of money from very important people. Mm -hmm. I actually would like to have that same mindset around data entry. If you know how that's going to impact the services of programs on the ground, then putting that in becomes easy, important, and sometimes fun. Mm -hmm. Aside from that, heavy existential answer, have a pizza party, do it together. (laughs) Community really helps with data entry. What about tying compensation and performance evaluations to data hygiene? Ooh, tricky question. I don't know. Have you seen this happen in organizations? Have you seen anyone do it? I think I might've tried to do it. Yeah. Um, I think I left before we we did the next performance review evaluation, but I mean, to me it was, really about making very clear that data entry and data hygiene were part of your responsibilities. Like it is mm-hmm. in your job. And so in, as much of your job as it's like talking to kids or teaching that class, right? Nice. And again, though, I think part of it is like trust, but verify. It's like, okay, you could say that you're doing data entry, but mm-hmm. if we're not actually really using the data or checking to see that the data is inputted, like is it really there? Right. It's like if, one if a hand tree clapping. falls. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but actually, I mean, it, that is, you're very right and it's very serious. Yeah. If we're spending time doing data entry that doesn't go anywhere, that's a waste of time. Like right. tech for tech's sake, data for data's sake is not the end goal there. I think it's a really interesting idea to allow compensation, maybe because then I would be like, woohoo, data entry all day, every day. But I, I think at least having the message, like tying it into your job, embedding it in your job, yeah. can't, I don't think it can go wrong. Maybe it's not in compensation necessarily, but in performance reviews, just in weekly meetings, mm-hmm. knowing that that's going to be a topic, that the conversation is going to be out there, part of weekly meetings, you know, however it can be. We were talking earlier about culture change and how important culture change and change management is in mm-hmm. making sure you have like a tech positive mm-hmm. organization, data-driven organization. I think this is where you can really make an impact in that cultural space mm-hmm. by just embedding the conversation around technology and data into the lifeblood of the organization. So I know one of the things that you do in your spare time is that you coach people around tech. So how can a tech coach help organizations get to the next level? Because I think sometimes, you know, it it can be hard to know what to do, especially if you're not techie yourself or no one on your team is techie. You know, you kind of want to be at a certain point. You're not quite sure how to get there. Can coaches such as yourself help and how? Yeah, there's probably a lot of ways that coaches can help even in just taking on some capacity too, like mm. having their brains on the problem and suggesting solutions is just another set of eyes that can really be helpful. I think it could also go in the way of helping an organization clarify priorities because they come with potentially, hopefully the experience of having made a lot of decisions around which way to go with their tech mm-hmm. or our organization's tech. So they can bring that experience to the table. To me, the most impactful way that it's a coach can influence an organization in this way is to touch on the culture piece Mm -hmm. so that when they leave, 
everyone at the organization feels that it's part of their job and that they like it, <laughs> that it's fun, that technology and data as part of their work of social impact, mission-driven work, that it's an essential part. It's kind of like working yourself out of a job almost, make mm. everyone there a cheerleader and a coach for each other so mm. that they can continue the journey along the way. Because, And that's one of the things I really like about technology work in general. Nobody is an expert. It's mm-hmm. just technology changes too fast. It's going to, like, it goes forward without you. So no one is ever going to be an expert. Mm-hmm. We're just all kind of helping each other get get it better. Sometimes attention in organizations around technology has to do with generational differences. And so when mm-hmm. you have, say, board members that are baby boomers and exec directors in C-suite that are more Gen Xers, and then yeah. you have program staff that are millennials and now starting to be Gen Z. Oh, yeah. Have you noticed that tension? And I'm wondering, like, should we just hire a bunch of millennials to run all the data <laughs> as digital natives? It's funny because I had a conversation with someone who works at a university, pretty much just put the question to her as simple as, do the students leaving your university know how to use Excel? And it's not 100% yes, of course, they grew up with it. That's that. So I think that the generational differences are a strength, even if some of the tropes about those generations hold true, whereas like say an older generation is, I don't know, fearful of change or is uh, wary of taking on more technology, something like that. Sometimes putting the brakes on that in the conversation is good. Mm-hmm. Again, like that's why everyone needs to be having a conversation about tech before you're just driving forward and, and building and collecting and everyone having the diverse perspectives in that conversation about technology is going to always be valuable. I know part of your role and responsibilities have been around training folks Mm -hmm. internally on technology and and data collection and so forth. What would you recommend as the minimum viable level of data literacy within an organization? IP for each org might be a little different. I think that the place that has the most impact, so it might be MVP, is that people have an open mind, that they are willing to explore the possibilities mm-hmm. and not get stopped at, no, that's not possible. That's not really data literacy, I think. I think it, if we're really going to talk about what it, what's the minimum level of data literacy that we want to see is knowing the difference between data, information, and knowledge. Ooh, tell, what's the difference? Yeah, so, and you can probably look this up. There's like a triangle that visualizes it, a, a pyramid. Data at the bottom is like just messy numbers and letters that don't mean anything. So five, red, right. seven. Information is when that gets organized and it makes some sense. So we, how many donors did we have this year? Five. Right. What, you know, what's our brand color? Red. Then it makes some sense to us. Knowledge is when we're able to kind of take take it to the next level and make assumptions, like make connections, do data-driven decision-making based on a synthesis of the information. And you can't really do, you know, one without the rest of them. Yeah. So data becomes knowing that data is not just for data's sake, that it's going to turn into something organized and help us to build knowledge and make decisions. That's probably where you want people coming in in their minds. Does wisdom sit on top of knowledge? There's been different pyramids suggested. So some, the most common ones, I think they even call it the D-I-K-Y pyramid, Mm -hmm. the data, information, knowledge, wisdom. 
or sometimes that's replaced by insights. Yeah. So yeah, but it's a little nebulous. There's not exact definitions of each. So, you know, it's funny to me because when we talk about data fluency and tech fluency, it's so interesting how people will throw their hands up and be like, oh, well, I, you know, I'm just not a a data person or a techie person, but Mm -hmm. I do think that data and and tech fluency are as important as being able to read. And so, like, nobody would ever be like, oh, well, you know, I just don't know how to read. <laughs> you know, I'm not one of those people that like, is into words. <laughs> yeah. And yet, like, it's sort of an accepted thing to not be a tech person. Yeah. And it's a little bit of a, a false attribution, probably, even for the people who say it about themselves. You just don't realize how much of a data tech person you really are. Like, look at where we've come. Mm-hmm. It's just embedded in our lives to use certain technologies, to adapt new technologies, and to consume data. Like, even if you didn't want to consume data, it's being shot at you from every direction. So yeah. you're going to get it inside you somehow. So to feel, you know, in this world, I think, a sense of some kind of control, some sense of ability to navigate a complicated array of information and data and technology uh, is to be able to say to yourself, yeah, I'm a techie. Mm-hmm. Sure. I, I get this. I'm on my path like everyone else. Maybe I'd like to understand a certain aspect better, or be faster at doing certain work in technology, mm-hmm. but it's totally possible for me to get there because we're all on the same sort of growing journey. Right. Um, I guess it's, it's about having a growth mindset around mm-hmm. your own data technology relationship. You talked a little bit before about the fear that people have around technology, or maybe it's like they're not comfortable with it. Or And I, I think a lot about data, because I think, especially in light of all of these data breaches that we've seen recently, mm. it feels like, and I'll just speak for myself, before all these data breaches, I was like, it's fine. Don't <laughs> worry about it. And now it's like, oh, actually, there really is something to be concerned about. And so... Do you feel like these data breaches are just reaffirming people who already had a healthy fear and skepticism Mm -hmm. of data? Probably. That's probably (laughs) what it's doing for them. (laughs) If they had that fear already, it it affirms it. I don't know. I think I'm still in the orientation of, yeah, it's going to (laughs) happen. Maybe not to say whatever, it's okay when it happens, but let's make sure we have a plan Mm because it's probable that it'll happen. And there's a lot of human factor in it too. Like, sure, you can get hacked. But I think more commonly, people are kind of getting spammed. Mm-hmm. I did hear of a case of a person working in a nonprofit sending money to a scammer instead of where they thought it was going to the nonprofit. So and I think they were able to retrieve it. So it ended up okay. But it's, it's really that human relationship with technology mm-hmm. that can lead to some of, the, some of the problems, some of the breaches we have. So if you've fear that, you know, learning about it, if you kind of opt out of technology because of that, I think you're putting yourself at a disadvantage. Mm -hmm. It's better to know the enemy amongst us and know the things that could happen. Be gracious with yourself because, again, we're human. Everyone makes mistakes. It can happen. If people are trying to scam you on the street and on the Internet. Right. But if if it's, again, part of, like, the lifeblood of the organization and you're talking about it and making sure people know how to deal with security, how to deal with data, the more, the more, you know, (laughs) it just makes you feel better. So last question, because I, I, we're going to wrap up here, but I think part of building a database and a data driven culture is that it's open access to people, right? Like you want to build a data fabric so that people can answer the questions that they have about the organization. And on the flip side, there's also 
the very real responsibility to protect data, uh, especially when it pertains to people and their personal information. And so how do you reconcile that tension? Maybe you don't. It might be good to keep that tension there so that the the uh, importance of that privacy and protecting the data is there mm-hmm. because of some tension and conflict between wanting transparency and openness and mm-hmm. more. Yeah, it might be good to have that tension. Tension is okay. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like fear and then being held back by that, mm-hmm. I think, is, is where it starts to feel more icky to mm-hmm. me. And I think people should rest assured also that there are some things in place that are protecting us all day, every day. Like what? You know, just, just your basic, maybe your IT team or else like set up a malware system on your computer that you don't even think about. Mm-hmm. That when they set up your email system for your organization, that they did ask themselves questions about security. Like that, that is a conversation happening in some places. Mm-hmm. And I don't even know, but I'm sure that there are like mechanisms happening even just on my phone that are protecting me on a daily basis for people trying to get in, mm-hmm. you know, even just my, having my password, whatever. So I'm grateful for those protections and I want to be prepared mm-hmm. for the ones that I don't have the, the things that slip through. Yeah. I've seen organizations kind of be a bartle. They're either like, everything is open and we're totally transparent or like we're locking everything down. Mm-hmm. While I understand the impulse to lock everything down, I also think it doesn't serve you to have a data-driven organization or have data fabric if only some people can access the data. Like the whole point of building a database is that (laughs) people can access the data. Absolutely. I mean, and it takes trust. Yeah. That's an an essential part of the culture of your organization is going to be built up in that trust. Trust that they can serve your participants or your uh, constituents, Mm -hmm. whoever you're serving, that you can actually serve and help in the community. We trust you to do that. So we also trust you to do that with technology and with data. We provide a lot of times support, Mm -hmm. professional development, rules, handbooks, employee handbooks. In all these different areas, we provide support for people to allow us to give them trust that they're going to be able to do their jobs well and we can support them. It's same thing with data and technology. Build that trust and support in. Yeah. I think I had sort of a covenant Jesus moment when I was building my own database. We were having some conversations about like, well, what should folks not be allowed to see? And I actually generally erred on the side of of being more open than not. And it got very interesting around, would we allow non-development people to see donor information Mm. or donations? And my thought was, yes, because they're part of this organization and fundraising and donations are part of what makes this organization run. And if I can't trust you as an employee to handle that information responsibly, then like I probably shouldn't have you on staff full mm-hmm. stop. That's a great point. Again, coming back to trust, it really highlights how important that is. Yeah. I think the question that you asked, like, why shouldn't we, that question paired with like an answer of why we should and why we shouldn't right. is a really important conversation to have sometimes about little granular pieces of information as simple as email address or social security number. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you've already put in some work about like your organization's general attitude around transparency or like access to data within the organization, it might make it easier. You have a little more of a roadmap to make those little smaller decisions that come up on a daily, weekly basis. Yeah. But it is a conversation, I would say. It has to be a conversation. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, we are out of time, but I just want to remind the listeners that Emily will be here again. We're going to try to make this a monthly sit down. So if you have any pressing questions, we'd love to hear them. 
Email riawong at gmail.com. And we will see you next time, Emily. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you.